children. Yes, it's the end of the world. That's the time. That's the event. These are our last thoughts, our last breaths as the earth cancels us. And then I'm here with Savitri D. Hello, Savitri. Hey, Rev. I'm Reverend Billy. This is a production of the Church of Stop Shopping. I wish you would stop shopping. I think it's I think it's 15 years too late for that. What do we have to stop now? Listen, it's Tuesday, September 11th. 17 years ago, Billy and I stood on my rooftop in Fort Greene or Bed-Stuy or Clinton Hill. It's kind of there, triangulated. And we watched as the towers fell in a cloud of toxic smoke and dust and ash. We stood there with people from all over the world and we knew everything would be different. Nothing would be the same. And the place that we went to uh, was Union Square at 14th Street and Broadway in downtown Manhattan. Um, the focal point of change throughout the history of our city and probably it predated our yeah, city. No doubt. It is the convergence of multiple streams. And it was always thought to be kind of a loaded, charged, holy space in New York. And for whatever reason, people have always gathered there. It's always been a place where people went when things felt impossible or when we wanted to celebrate. Uh, and it was no different after 9-11. It became a kind of speaker's corner. There were thousands of people there and... Uh, you know, the, the missing posters, the flowers, the candles, um, gifts sent from all over the world, um, circles of people trying to figure out what to do. Those, those pictures of the missing, I particularly remember the um, full-color, you know, life-size faces on, on, on the lampposts and benches, just relatives not believing they'd lost their loved ones and, and putting up their pictures and having personal messages right. with Sharpie pens right. and so we forth. We love you. We miss you. And at that time, Come of course, on home. it wasn't clear that everyone who was missing was probably gone and that there were so few people who were in the in-between, you know, who were lost or injured There or were no hospital. bodies. It was just uh, people were vaporized and, and there were no remains. And so people could persuade themselves that, that their loved ones had somehow escaped. And I think for a lot of us who were here in New York that day, it, it continues to be this strange memory because it's hard to uh, really uh, understand that when you watch those buildings fall, you were watching thousands of people die. I mean, you knew it, but also to the emotion of it was so strange and surreal and it was uh, they were just the most massive buildings they were so big and the sensation that we had been bombed that we had our own pearl harbor on the other side right and that and the knowledge that everyone knew, knew that we would be going to war and we are still at war and that that afghan afghanistan invasion was just a few weeks later and then Iraq, and, and those places are still... And Yemen, and Somalia, and um, our perma-war has uh, become fixed to that part of the world. But there were wonderful uh, uh, convergences of people after 9-11. There were amazing uh, movements of people through the streets of New York and other places as well. There was... Uh, you found yourself in contact with people you didn't you had never been in contact with before it did also explode the the um the bonds between people and opened up new space for connection and um and that was really interesting it was an interesting time to be alive in new york and there was so much grief and confusion but there was also so much uh cooperation and help and um i will say though in the months after i don't know how many dinner parties billy and i destroyed with our politics. <laughs> like it was hard in lots of ways to get through a night because you didn't know how people were gonna feel about the wars. And it was sometimes surprising who 
supported war. After. You remember that lady that was beating me with her purse? <laughs> yes, And I it do. turned out uh, that she was Winston Churchill's granddaughter. <laughs> Did you guys not get married because of 9-11 or something like that? Well, uh, that was one of the influences. I mean, I heard that once. One never From remembers. Me? No. One can never remember exactly why it happened. A lot of people got <laughs> married post 9-11 though, right? I mean, I think a lot of people just get married. People also got divorced. <laughs> they took their own lives. They moved. They left. A lot of people to left. other cities. They moved to New York. I mean, it was it was a concentrated war moment. And what people do in wars, you migrate, you change radically. You the falsehoods that were keeping you in place are suddenly gone, and you just want to be honest. And you feel like you probably don't have much time left and you just do it. You just but no one will forget the militarization of our streets. No one can forget what happened. I mean, it was already bad enough. Giuliani's cops were not friendly types, but I can tell you when, when the when the guard was rolling through New York City, when suddenly there were guys with guns in the subways. I mean, we're used to it now, right? But that was, it was extreme and it was terrible. And the city really never recovered from that. That opened up a door for a, a kind of gentrification and, and uh, corporatization um, that nobody really saw coming. And New York will never be the same on that front. What's the phrase about, may you be blessed by living in interesting times? There is a way that it is interesting and so tragic, the, the mortality, the wars that you could feel starting. But fascinating nonetheless and we have our song at the beginning of the show the end of the world um, and today I think our theme is you know what do you do when hope is no longer realistic we've gone past we've gone off the edge of the cliff like Wiley Coyote, Coyote in mm -hmm. that cartoon mm -hmm. let's go from our local our local 9-11 our local Union Square let's go out to the world because this is all a part of one ecosystem called the earth Let's go to news from the natural world. Good morning. I'm Savitri D. This is news from the natural world. During pregnancy, the scat of a naked mole rat queen, the only female in the colony that reproduces, giving birth to a few dozen pups each year, contains high levels of the sex hormone estradiol. When subordinate female naked mole rats eat that feces, the estradiol they pick up cues them to snap into parenting mode and care for the queen's offspring. Okay? In colonies of naked mole rats, lower-ranking females Amen. don't have developed ovaries and don't reproduce. They also don't experience the pregnancy-induced hormonal shifts that usually cue parenting behaviors, yet they, they still care for the queen's babies. Uh, this is called coprophagia, and uh, that's fecal eating. And it's common in uh, fermenting species, Cecil fermenting species, it's called, in rabbits, for instance. Uh, rabbits have a special bowel movement at around 3 a.m. This bowel movement, instead of a pellet, is a larger rosette that is not allowed to touch the ground. The rabbit rolls up and pucks it directly from the anus, and this special poop is loaded with vitamin K and other nutrients. Okay, naked mole rats, people. I don't know. The rose poop. I'm trying to write this. I'm trying to <laughs> write the notes. As many as 80, just to cheer you all up on this sad day. By the end of this year, Pakistan will have planted its billionth tree since 2015, part of a wider international effort to rehabilitate 150 million hectares of degraded land. One billion trees. Yes. Amen. A wildlife tra trafficking watchdog organization found over 1,500 listings on Facebook selling animals in Thailand in violation of the social media's platform platform's rules. Uh, nearly one-third of the world's farms have adopted more environmentally friendly practices while continuing to be productive, according to a global assessment by 17 scientists in five countries. Researchers analyze farms that use some form of sustainable intensification, a term for various practices including organic farming that use land, water, biodiversity, labor, knowledge, and technology to both grow crops and reduce environmental impacts like pesticide pollution, soil erosion, and greenhouse gas emissions. Yes, you can do this and still increase your crops. West Africa farmers have increased yields of maize and cassava, and some 100,000 farmers in Cuba increased their productivity 150% while cutting their pesticide use by 85%. Mm. 
And here perhaps the worst news I've ever heard. As lawmakers convene on Capitol Hill to finalize the latest federal farm bill, environmental advocates warn that a House proposal could put public health at risk by rolling back restrictions on pesticides in 155 communities nationwide. The Environmental Working Group released its analysis of data from the nonprofit group Beyond Pesticides, including an interactive map of local policies that it says could be scuttled if the House measures pass. Those regulations vary widely. Some communities restrict neonicotinoid use to protect pollinators, while others map out pesticide-free buffer zones or require that public notice be posted when pesticides are applied on public or private property. 58 U.S. communities have adopted more comprehensive policies that prohibit the use of glyphosate, the widely used weed killer under increasing scrutiny for its human health impacts. The measure in the current Farm Bill would amend... I can barely say this. The Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, and Rodenticide Act to say specifically that a political subdivision of a state may not regulate the sale or use of pesticides. And here a quote from Chris Novak, CropLife America president and CEO. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency Office of Pesticide Programs regulates and registers all pesticides after years of diligent and thorough testing. These decisions are based on extensive scientific data to establish that these products are safe to human health and the environment when used properly. Localities lack the staff resources and scientific expertise to conduct these reviews. So this is a time you call your senator. I've never said this on air before. Call your senator and say, take that out of the farm bill. Because if local communities can't say no to pesticides, we are in big trouble. Okay, a Houston-based company says one of its pipelines has spilled more than 8,000 gallons of jet fuel into a river in Indiana. The Buckeye Pipeline says it shut the line down immediately when it found the pressure problem Friday night. Local officials say they have placed booms in St. Mary's River, the body of water into which the fuel spilled, and are vacuuming the oil off the surface. The cleanup may take weeks. A Louisiana court has granted an injunction against energy transfer partners shutting down illegal construction of the Bayou Bridge Pipeline and part of the Atchafalaya Basin. Amen. Yes, a court has validated Good news. claims by activists that the ETP lacked easement permits and they have banned all ETP employees and workers from the site and banned any form of construction activities. This is the work of activists. Vermont wildlife officials say a moose drowned in Lake Champlain on Saturday after people crowded around the animal in order to take its picture. The selfie that killed the, the animal moose. made it onto a onto land near a cycle path, but was forced back into the water, threatened by onlookers. The moose then succumbed to exhaustion and drowned. People should keep their distance from moose encountered in the wild. Best practice is to stay away from the moose. Keep your distance. Don't crowd the moose. Amen. <clears throat> Seems self-evident. But you would we think so. We have to keep repeating these things A to each other. Mixed bag here today. Mixed bag. Sorry about that. <laughs> you know, the news from the natural world will bring you down. I'm especially dismayed by this uh, farm bill measure. I just cannot stand the idea that that these right-wing people who are constantly claiming states' rights when it's convenient to them then will remove the right of a community to say no to a pesticide. It just makes me absolutely... Clearly, they're they're accepting money from Monsanto and Dow and DuPont and uh, all the crop science, you know, the GMO pesticide giants around the world are... Paying off the um, oh yeah the legislators because the so writing obvious. is on the the so. writing is on the wall we know this with this with Lee this. Johnson trial yes yes we know the writing is on the wall and they have so much stockpiled uh, toxic pesticide to get rid of to use up and they just know they have to use at least that up at the very least they need to make money off what they've already created well let's have some good news some good news yeah some good news Bayer. Bayer, the Bayer Company, the prime manufacturer of the honeybee-killing, pollinator-killing neonicotinoids, and the supposed financial savior of Monsanto, as Monsanto headed towards the Lee Johnson trial and 8,000 other trials, Bring it on. Bayer merged with Monsanto. One of the first meetings that Trump had after he was elected was with executives of Monsanto and Bayer. Bayer's 
value on the stock market has been reduced since Lee Johnson's award of $285 million by a jury of his peers. The value of Bayer has gone down 10%, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is billions worth of paper money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Bayer's a, a wonderful company. They, yes, they, founded uh, by Nazis. Yeah. They, uh, their, their executives helped design the, the Cyclone B shower nozzles at Auschwitz. They're, they're marvelous people. And they, uh, there's no evidence of Auschwitz on their website. <laughs> uh, but they, uh, they sure will kill if your back is turned. They'll kill if you're, if you're uh, trying to um, keep a healthy hive community going in your, in your backyard. They'll, ki they'll, they'll, they'll kill if they can sell it. And that culture has been continuous since they invented heroin in the 1890s. The Bayer <laughs> Company, the Bayer <laughs> oh Company, has, now, has uh, now joined with wow. Monsanto in a marriage that Bernie Sanders called a marriage made in hell. Yeah, let's listen to some music. Let's, let's, let's do something else. I, I said that was going to be good news, but I, <laughs> I veered off. <laughs> Public space. Breaking into public space, the Stop Shopping Choir. Bring it on. Listeners, uh, we have Mike Rozell on the line. Mike barely needs an introduction. He's a, a legend, uh, founder of Earth First, Rainforest Action Network, Ruckus Society, working for decades uh, to wake us all up. And uh, he's in West Virginia right now. Um, Rock Creek, is that is that where you live? Rock Creek on the Coal River. Amen. So, <laughs> Professor Rozell, uh, last week 
a few thousand people marching for climate, but pipelines slowing down in the courts. What do you think? What's happening? Not enough, but it's all good, I guess. But, uh, I mean, I, I personally find it a little irritating that the uh, mainstream climate movement is so focused on the size of their, you know, mobilizations to right. say that this is the biggest, that's the biggest, the largest north of Southern California or whatever. Uh, the fact is having only 30,000 people at the largest demonstration shows a failure of us to mobilize people. Yeah, I agree. And that would be we San Francisco, more right? than that, and it has to be more about painting the sidewalk and, you know, harassing the cops for a few hours. Right, right. So what should it be about? Is it really about, like, direct action now? Is it really about just saying no? Is it about, what do you think? What should we do? Well, I mean, you know, I've been working on the climate issue probably going back to, well, 1985 for sure, but even a little bit before that. And uh, I always thought that we had time. And then as time went by, not only did we not reduce emissions or stop deforestation or reform our agriculture, but we kept uh, increasing the amount of CO2 that we're emitting, and we're still doing that today. More so, every year, more more fossil fuel burning every year. Yeah. yeah. But when, as long as I thought that we had a some kind of a chance, then I thought that we were obliged to do what we could and I, for one, I agreed with uh, Dr. James Hansen and Al Gore uh, when they said that we need civil disobedience, uh, but really nonviolent direct action because civil disobedience is not a very precise term for what we do. Um, and we didn't see it. And, and we saw a, I think, kind of a, a toned down version of it. And uh, there weren't enough participants. Mm. But, you know, the whole point. I think of direct action is to create models of resistance and inspire others to take action. And so we have to admit that we're not really anywhere near where we're supposed to be. And then we have this new situation of uh, the tipping points, which again, Dr. Hansen and others have warned us about that once we get to these points, it's game over. And he said this 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right. So that was 15 years where we didn't really make any progress, but we kept uh, going on about the progress that we were making. And I think we gave people a false sense of uh, optimism. I think that, uh, you know, it kind of diluted the urgency. And now look where we are. I mean, I'm looking at a, a hurricane barreling right down towards me right now. And we're, we have sludge dams here with billions of gallons of sludge and, Oh I'm on the floodplain, so my house may not be here next week, <laughs> depending on the amount of rainfall that we get. Well, you've had some terrible floods in West Virginia. So it, it really is a, a terrifying moment to be alive, and I'm, I'm no longer worried about it because there's really not a lot that we can do. Um, mm -hmm. We had every government on the planet agree that this was a problem, agree that we needed to take action. And they set targets, but they weren't mandatory. And then, of course, I don't think any country has met their targets. So uh, we just keep missing the bus. Least of all, the United yeah. States. We haven't, not only have we missed our targets, we've... What is it about human nature? I mean, what is it? Because we are capable of so much cooperation. We are so cooperative when, you know, our meal is at stake, right? When we, when we need to... Our the, meal is at stake. Right. I'm just saying, wh <laughs> why, why can we cooperate when we're making a hamburger, but we can't cooperate about this? Well, there's just, uh, it, it's such a big problem, and it, and it just covers almost every aspect of how we live now. Uh, but there's not only a lot of us, but our numbers are growing, and we're not establishing ourselves in really tight, close-knit communities like we used to. And um, I mean, one of the things I noticed living here in West Virginia, what keeps people here is their family and their community. And they'll mm -hmm. take mm -hmm. the poverty, and they'll take the pollution, and they'll take whatever. But those, you know, having the grandparents nearby to watch right. the children, all those things are extremely important. And when mm -hmm. I go out on the West Coast and I visit somebody's house, they don't know who the, the name of the person lives across the street from them. 
often they don't know the name of the person that lives next door to them. Mm. Their family members are scattered all over the state or all over the country, in some places all over the world. And so we're not functioning in units, cooperative units, as we used to when we were nomads. Mm. So there's the cohesion is breaking down, yeah? Or broken down. So countries like Iceland where people have a lot in common and they have shared the same space for so many generations, you know, they're they're easy able to come to a consensus. But we can't come to any consensus. Mm -hmm. We can't even uh, agree on the problems, really, much less the solutions. And some of the consensual decisions that Iceland has made, like putting neoliberal bankers in jail, uh, doing the kinds of things that we noticed we didn't do in the United States after 2008, uh, yeah, making sure their children get good educations and they treat uh-huh. their mm-hmm. uh, refugees mm-hmm. well. Uh, you know, we need to be doing all that here. And I really, we're in a, uh, a, a point where adaptation to climate change is our only option. Yeah. It cannot be stopped. Mitigating, how yeah. Quickly it will spread. But every report that comes out, and keep in mind when a report comes out, it takes two years to put right. the report together. Mm-hmm. It takes another year to get it peer-reviewed and published. So by the time a new study comes out, there's like two or three more years of data that were left out of that study. Mm-hmm. And then when we see the next study, we find out that, oh, Antarctica is warming three times faster than we thought. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this ice is not going to stop melting, and these oceans are not going to cool off. Mm-hmm. And we can see with these storms lined up all around the equator, that we're in a, 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 a serious adaptation, and um, I just don't find this uh, uh, all the focus on just generating electricity for our residential areas, you know, to be the right focus. Um, we need to retool our entire industrial society, and I'm yeah. afraid we neither have the time nor, nor the, the leadership consensus to do it. Yeah. Mike, I want to tell you that, uh, you know, when I was coming up and I was just a 17-year-old kid, like, your work did inspire me. And um, so thank you for all that you have done. And you were the first direct action activist I ever heard about, you know. <laughs> and um, I'm grateful. And uh, well, I thank you. you know? And, you know, of course, I was inspired by Greenpeace and the anti-nuclear movement and, uh, of course, the civil rights movement. And uh, so we all stand on the shoulders yes, of Yes, we do. We'll just that keep came before us, but I, I just really, I, it, it saddens me that we don't look at direct action the way we did. That, uh, you know, when I first started doing it with the anti-nuclear movement, we didn't give our names and we never bailed out. We never accepted uh, probation. You know, sometimes a thousand people will be arrested at a time and we would demand that we all be released without charges. And with that kind of jail solidarity, that, you know, uh, willingness to actually sit in jail, it's it, it's gone. You know, mm-hmm. people say, "Oh, I got arrested. I want my bail right now. I want to be out by five. And had they stayed in jail for three or four days, they would have had their charges reduced, their bail reduced or eliminated, and uh, they would have made a much more powerful statement. But we don't teach people that anymore. And mm-hmm. I just find that we're actually teaching them something quite different from the traditional nonviolent direct action that I was. Basically, I was raised with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's good to hear you say that because, you know, I'm doing a training this weekend and it just it makes me think about, yeah, how we teach people to what we teach them to expect and how easy it should be and why we're why have we made it so easy for people? That's the way we've invited people into it, but not realizing that there's a lot that comes from uh, doing something difficult. There's a lot of reward there for the participant as well. The consumerism is the dedication to the idea, the ritual of comfort and convenience at all costs. Well, and, you know, it, for me, the point of direct action is non-cooperation with evil. And uh, so at a certain point, you know, you go to D.C., you get a $100 fine, and you pay it. You don't even go to jail. I, I don't see that as civil disobedience. It's it's too scripted. Uh, I know uh, what you're referring to the that that march a few years ago where you just got a parking <laughs> ticket. <laughs> you lined up. Yeah, they, you lined up. You <laughs> didn't even get handcuffs. You just get a parking ticket. No, I mean Bill McKibben was tweeting from the bus. I mean they didn't even take their cell phones. <laughs> well, I've had that happen in Ferguson, Missouri. They put us in a paddy wagon. 
Every one of us had our iPhone, and and they kept us in there for a long, no, long time. No, but they also kept. It was an ice box. You were in there, and you all turned blue. And oh, almost, that's right. We just about froze to death. You almost got there hypothermic. Was, it was that not. That was the downside. <laughs> there was some. They punishment. forgot to turn the air conditioning off. Listen, uh, Mike. My last, my last time in jail, they tried to freeze me real bad. I still get shivers when I think about it. Yeah, oh, and there's nothing colder than a cold day in jail. Listen, well, Mike. Your warm personality. Kept you're you the alive. best. We. You know, good luck riding out this storm. I hope things aren't too bad. I know you're waterlogged already, but uh, really, all best to you and yours. And uh, we'll talk to you really soon. All right. Thanks, Thanks Mike. So Thank you. Take care. Take care and good luck. All right. Bye. Bye. Whoa, my favorite place on Earth. Gosh, my favorite place on Earth. My favorite place on Earth. Boy, you know, I sort of like any place on Earth, you know, is pretty good with me. Welcome back to The Earth Wants You. I'm Savitri D. with my co-host, Reverend Billy. Amen. We're here in Brooklyn, New York, and we are delighted to have Michael Higgins in our studio today. Michael is a community organizer at FURY. That's Families United for Racial and Economic Equality. Mm-hmm. Uh, a FURY. Incredible organization. Great. You, got it. you got it in the first shot. We really Grass appreciate it. Grassroots. <laughs> it's hard. The real deal. <laughs> FURY. Not so easy. Uh, Started by mothers, right? Yes, absolutely. In Bed-Stuy, Fort yes. Greene, yeah. uh, Brooklyn-based, just doing the work day after day. Michael, welcome to The Earth Wants You. Oh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Summer's over. What's going on at Fury? Brooklyn March Against Gentrification, Racism, and Police Violence. Yes. Talk to us about your march this Saturday. Yeah, so this is the second annual march. Uh, we did it last year, and we, you know, we had a few different struggle to, struggles that we wanted to highlight across Brooklyn. And so we said, okay, well, how can we kind of connect them? And he said, we'll walk and connect them and, uh-huh. you know, walk through communities, try to make ourselves visible, and try to, you know, bring some justice and bring some, some spotlight to these different issues. So this Saturday, we're doing that again. So we're going to be starting uh, about 11, 11 o'clock. Uh, people want to, you know, come in, you know, watch us um, set up, you know, get the music going. And then we'll be marching at noon. Um, so we're going to be leaving from the Parkside Plaza. If people know the southeast corner of Prospect Park, mm-hmm. um, pr- uh, Parkside and Ocean. And then we'll be walking up to the Brooklyn Botanic Gardens. Uh, where there is currently a struggle around uh, a few different developments uh, just to the east of the gardens where we're looking at potentially 30 to 40-story towers. What, Eastern be. Parkway? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just south of Eastern Parkway in Crown Heights. Um, people are familiar with Ebertsfield. Mm-hmm. We're, we're sure. just a you know, few blocks um, away from there. And then we're going to be marching uh, around down here to uh, not that far from the commons. So we'll be having to stop at Wyckoff Gardens, which is just south of... Uh, studio, and then we'll be marching on to Sunset Park, uh, where there has a been a continuous uh, struggle against Industry City, mm-hmm. and then we'll be ending in Sunset Park. Wow, it's a great walk through Brooklyn, and I bet a lot of people haven't actually walked these routes. And yeah. I was there last year. Um, I was amazed, you know, at the energy. It was also really interesting to walk through highly gentrified areas, mm-hmm. uh, w- and feel the tension. It was. Mm-hmm. It was real um, by a lot of people having brunch, you know, sitting around having brunch and really to watch people be confronted by the question of gentrification in the midst of gentrification. Heavy police presence, I remember, right? When I'm next to those square glassy luxury condos and (laughs) marching, I, I, I ask myself, is my hair combed? I'm yeah. Well, we were on dirt under my finger. We were on Franklin Street. I remember last year. Yeah, it was particularly yeah. uh, stark on Franklin yeah. Street, which uh, a neighborhood we remember because uh, I remember in two thousand. What would that have been? Two thousand eight or so. They flooded that neighborhood with six hundred rookie cops. Right. Mm. So we knew it was coming. Right. Mm. This thing, but so fast, yeah. so fast. Yeah, and, and you know. It, we the part of the reason other reason why we do things like this is just so we give people kind of like a real like moment in time to just see okay what does our neighborhoods look like at this moment that's kind of like we march because mm-hmm. we you know some i mean in new york it's it's experienced to kind of experience things spatially by walking mm-hmm. and you know kind of seeing you know businesses and buildings um but we try to also document 
just mm-hmm. so you know we know that these communities are changing rapidly and we want to make sure that we kind of preserve um this moment in time for posterity well let there be a witness do i have a witness we've got to see it we got to be in it with our bodies yeah. and that is um that is a change we would like to see uh in the in the uh environmental movement too we'd like people to to get out into the wetlands to get into the parks uh, get away from the computers mm-hmm. michael let me ask you where do you see people desegregating the most like what what are the areas that you work in where you feel like people are able to reach across and get 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 across these racial boundaries hmm. so that's a great question so um i would say you know there's some fundamental needs that all humans need um all need all pe- humans eat we need food we need air we need water um new york you know it seems like housing is an issue that's universally felt because housing is expensive for everyone even though you know some people can afford it and some people cannot and so uh, we're seeing that a lot of people are starting to build those relationships and just feeling that you know they're being exploited they're being taken advantage of of you know living in the city um, people come here for a lot of different reasons whether you know you come here to uh, pursue your your dreams you come here because you know maybe you couldn't survive where you were from and so you're trying to re renew and re you rebrand yourself and create mm-hmm. a new identity for yourself mm-hmm. and so um you know we we all try to come and you know share the space together and you know unfortunately it's not easy um but being in contact with each other you know kind of forces us to kind of recognize people's humanity i hope mm-hmm. and that you know we all need um each other to survive in very fundamental ways and mm-hmm. we need to we we say that again and again Mm -hmm. you know because our society tells us that we're individuals Mm -hmm. and we're really not Mm -hmm. you know we're members of communities we're members of families um we are individuals but we're not in bubbles i mean one of the things i've learned watching fury over the years is the the power of community inside of activism and we've definitely looked at fury and said like that's a model right there of of community organizing because it really is a community. And when you, you when you go to Fury events, and I encourage anyone Fierce to go. Fierce grandmothers, grandmothers. It's intergenerational. Mm-hmm. Kids. It's, it's just so instructive. Uh, and music, food. And also makes you feel good. So like being inside the community, it's a community. makes yeah, it's the a hard work of activism Remember that one party better. two years ago we, we went to the fundraiser. It was uh-huh. down here on, yeah, below, actually down the slope from the, uh, from the Brooklyn Museum mm-hmm. where we yeah. gathered. Yeah. And uh, the feeling of community was was delicious. It was amazing. It was it was it made you want to be an activist. Is this is this where you end up? Yeah. This, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is feeling like a real human being. So once again, you can join this uh, walk and march um, from eleven to twelve at Parkside. Parkside Plaza. In the ocean. Uh, Parkside Notion, right outside the uh, Parkside Avenue train station off the uh, Q and the right. V. Right. And uh, we'll be marching, you know, around Brooklyn for a while. So if you want to catch us in your community, um, you know, you're more than welcome to. So we'll be marching through, uh, as I mentioned, we'll be marching through Crown Heights. We'll be marching through Prospect Heights. Uh, we'll have a stop um, just south of here in, in Broom Hill. And then we'll be marching on to Sunset Park. And we should be at Sunset Park um, around 530. People want to, you know kind of cheer us on towards right. the end right great so check it out at fury it's fury.org i think and um f-u-r-e-e.org there you go and um you also can find the facebook event um you know brooklyn march against uh gentrification racism and police violence um we also have the page for the you know the um the hosting organization the brooklyn anti-gentrification network we are b-a-n gentrification.org do it do it do it i'm out it's gonna be a nice day all right michael thank you so much michael higgins from from fury for being with us here on the earth wants you today Hard time.
Simone, our teacher. Our teacher. And now a new, a new segment, a new chapter in the Earth Wants You. Direct action, past, current, and future. What's happening? We're putting our bodies on the line out here. In the windows here in Brooklyn, we can see marches going by sometimes, people shouting. It's happening right now. Tell us about what's going on, Killian. Thank you, Billy. Here's some activist news. This week's drums of revolution are the Burinda drummers. India decriminalizes homosexuality. After a long-fought campaign, India's Supreme Court ruled unanimously to overturn the 140-year-old colonial law which banned consensual homosexual acts. Before Britain invaded India, homosexuality was featured prominently in Indian texts and sculptures. The British introduced Section 377 in 1861, which penalized anyone who voluntarily has carnal intercourse against the order of nature with any man, woman, or animal. Here's the story here. Hinduism often portrayed homosexuality as natural and pleasurable thing. European homophobia was introduced by European colonizers. If you hear any 
Europeans or British people making any snide remarks such as welcome to the 21st century India, you are hereby officially allowed to punch them. Activists in India who have long fought against discrimination will see this as a stepping stone to full rights. The ruling gives us a lever for the future, says Akhilesh Godi, 25. Keshav Suri, 33, wants legal recognition of his recent marriage to his French husband. Are you sure about that, Keshav? I am for sure happy, ready, willing and able to file a writ petition again on marriage equality and take that battle on. I am pretty sure others too are willing to do so. Brave souls willing to fight and put themselves out there for equality. Well done, India. Prison strikes in America. The largest US-wide prison strike ran from the 21st of August to the 9th of September, with at least 17 states participating. The strike started as a response to the seven people who lost their lives in the Lee Correctional Institution during an avoidable riot which happened as a result of inhumane living conditions. Overcrowded conditions are commonplace across the US due to a penal system which is based on profit, greed, racism and an absolute lack of respect for human life. That is why men and women across the country were striking until September 9th to demand humane living conditions, access to rehabilitation and the end to modern day slavery. Six million people have been stripped of their voting rights with 34 states still denying the right to vote based on past convictions. There is a prison population of 2.3 million people in America right now. That's half the population of Ireland. African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the US population, but they comprised of 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. The imprisonment rate for African American women is twice that of white women. Jailhouse lawyers speak led the movement, and yes, they are online, and yes, they have excellent information on their website. You can please check them out. Jailhouse lawyers speak. These are people who have been stripped of their democratic rights, participating in democracy. Democracy isn't just about voting. Democracy is about making some noise, getting out and putting your issue out there. So, so learn from these people and certainly support them. Now a quote from someone who's much smarter than me and knows a lot more about this, Abu Jamal and Fernandez in 2014. In its unprecedented expansion, hyperincarceration is one of the major institutions within which racism operates structurally in American society today. By imprisoning masses of black and Latino youth, destroying the fabric of communities of color and undercutting their capacity to regenerate massive democratic movements. Well, it hasn't stopped these guys. A massive democratic movement happening right now Check it out, Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, and that's all I've got for today. We'll have more next week and new revolutionary drummers. Thanks. And now Extinction's Got Talent. The Spix's macaw, one of the world's rarest birds, believed to have become extinct in the wild in 2000. This elegant parrot has delicate blue-gray plumage, fading from the bright blue tail and wings to an ashy blue crown. There's an era, area of featherless dark gray skin around their eyes. In 1990, a single wild male Spix's macaw was discovered paired with a female blue-winged macaw, but both individuals disappeared in 2000. There are still occasional unconfirmed local reports of Spix's macaw sightings. Spix's macaw is relatively long-lived. Estimates suggest it could reach 20 to 30 years of age in the wild. The blue macaw is also known as the guaco maito azul or the guaco mayo de Spix. And here are the sounds of the Spix's macaw. beautiful bird, an amazing ashy gray to deep blue color, extinct in the wild. Thank you, Savitri. We come to the end now of our Earth Wants You Hour. We've taken a, a journey from the bombing of 9-11 to the community making and political action of Union Square. Then we came out to West Virginia, to Coal Valley, West Virginia, talking with Mike Rozelle. We toured around the world and found to our dismay what is happening 
in the news from the natural world. And we walked around Brooklyn through luxury condos with um, organizations that are seeking homes uh, for New Yorkers that are not necessarily the new gentry, but traditional people who've lived here for many generations in some cases. We, we have, throughout this journey, been looking for community, looking for how people relate to each other in a special way that excites their resistance, their creativity, their imagination, their ability to stand up to these deadly, overwhelming forces that are, that are creating what we heard in the first song an hour ago, creating the end of the world. The question of our time is, why are we not saving ourselves? I want to leave you with that question today. Let's take that question through our week and start that saving process. Let the earth save us. Earthalluya. Thank you for listening. I'm Savitri D. with Reverend Billy. Share our show. Like it. Pass it around. We need your help. I'm here with Killian Sunderman, Brooklyn, New York. This is The Earth Wants You. <laughs>